BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Friday, October 29, 2021, the headline in today's Washington Post that just uh, came across my phone says it all, sort of summarizes what I'm going to be talking about with my distinguished guest. Virginia's governor's race, a toss-up as election day nears post-poll finds. 49% Terry McAuliffe, 48% Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, the Trumpy. Ladies and gentlemen, it's utter freaking madness. The state that went 10% uh, for uh, Biden over Trump just how many months ago now is a toss-up. Up is down, down is up. And for an explanation for all this, I'm turning to my distinguished guest. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself and let's start talking. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be back on the show. Um I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University here in Chicago. I'm the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And I write a weekly column for The Week, which is a little bit confusing. Um, anyway, thanks for having me back on the show. And I look, I look forward to talking about this mess unfolding in Virginia. <laughs> yes. Uh, your last column actually ties in uh, to the mess. What is America's COVID endgame? So we'll get to that. Uh, but first, let's help me make sense of the senseless. As I said uh, at the outset, Virginia was a state that went for Joe Biden decisively over Donnie Trump in November of 2020. And here we are in September, excuse me, in October of 2021. Uh, and next Tuesday is the election and it's neck and neck. Uh, your initial thoughts. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is not good. Um, the Virginia and, and New Jersey governor's races are the only two states in the country that hold their election, their, governor, their gubernatorial elections um, in, a, in a total off year. That is the year after a presidential election year. So it's 2021, 2017, 2013, 2009. Um, and so these races are thought of as kind of one of the first inputs that we have after a, a new president is elected or reelected in terms of what the, how, how the national political environment has or has not changed in the intervening months. Um, now, over the course of the past decade, Virginia has become a solid 
blue state. Okay. Um, as you noted in the introduction, Joe Biden won it by 10 points. Um, Ralph Northam won the governor's race in 2017 by eight points. Um, Terry McAuliffe won it, uh, not, not that big in 2013, but um, we've had a long run now of statewide democratic success in Virginia that's, that's lasted a decade. Um, and so you would expect uh, the Democratic uh, gubernatorial candidate here to, to win, you know, even, if, even if Joe Biden is a little bit less popular than he was um, when he was inaugurated. And so for this race to be a toss-up, um, that is, if the, if, the, if the national environment has shifted as much as it has, shift, as it has shifted in Virginia, that's very, very bad for national Democrats. Um, but just, just focusing on this race for a second, the Democratic Party in Virginia did this uh, just, to me, insane thing where they hauled Terry McAuliffe back out of retirement. Um, he had been a one-term governor of Virginia from 2013 to, to 2017. Um, and Virginia has, I, I, I don't know, it's like the stupidest possible way that you could do term limits. <laughs> okay, They cap you at, it, it's like you can serve two terms, but they can't be consecutive. So McAuliffe was fine when he left. He was popular, but they couldn't run again. And now Northam is fine and he's popular, but he can't run again. And so they brought back McAuliffe, who's like, at this point, a creature from a different era, um, doesn't excite anyone, um, has his roots in the sort of Clinton era democratic politics. And I think he was a better governor of Virginia than, um, than people may think, but he still doesn't, you know, he's not exciting anyone in the democratic base. And the Republicans have, have run this, uh, you know, harmless looking white guy named, named Glenn Youngkin, who's a, you know, a former, a former investment fund manager I think he's worth about half a billion dollars, has mansions in D.C. and multiple houses in Virginia and houses in Texas and Wyoming. Uh, but he's a man of the people, of course, Ben, man of the people, Glenn Youngkin. And uh, and he has run a not idiotic campaign. And so, yeah, it's a toss up. The polls show McAuliffe winning a, a narrow victory um, with a couple of exceptions. But um, when the race is that close and uh, and we don't necessarily have the same level of faith in the precision of polls that we used to, anything could really happen on Tuesday. But I, I have to say, unless the polls are off, you know, um, in a good way for us, th this is a very, a very stark warning signal about next year's midterm elections and then uh, and then Joe Biden's reelection campaign, pres presumptive reelection campaign in 2024. So it's something we need to pay attention All right, let's to. Put let, let's put the polls aside for a moment because uh, I could see us heading down a tangent. That would be a half hour to 45 minutes on polls, uh, one of our favorite topics left over from last year. Uh, so I'm going to resist the temptation to go down that path. And let's stick to some of the issues uh, that may be uh, undermining the Democrats. You raise a very good point in that Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, is a flawed candidate uh, with ties to Clinton. And we learned in 2016 how unpopular the Clintons are uh, with the Democratic base. I find myself um, more and more in line with that Democratic base, really turning against the Clintons, uh, particularly since I've been watching impeachment, the uh, show about uh, the, the Clinton impeachment. So there's two issues. Uh, one has to do with COVID fatigue and the other will start with, with the schools. And I've noted that uh, in one day, David Ferris. And one day I've seen uh, anti-Trump Republican columnists, uh, David Brooks of the uh, New York Times and Manu Sharin, who writes for, is published in the Sun-Times, uh, chiding Democrats uh, on the issue of critical race theory. And this caught me, I got to say, this has kind of caught me off guard. I didn't realize 
uh, silly me, live in my own bubble. Uh, what a potent issue this has become for Republicans, apparently. Uh, and the notion that uh, somehow or other Democrats are picking on parents when they say that parents who, uh, white parents who have objections uh, to children being taught what? That the s- slavery is bad? Uh, <laughs> not quite sure what I understand the objections are, uh, since nobody's teaching critical race theory anywhere in a public school, much less really understands it. Uh, so, Anyway, your thoughts on the impact of critical race theory as a campaign tactic by the Republicans? Sure. Yeah. First of all, Ben, um, if you want to be a full-fledged uh, moral panicker, you have to refer to it as CRT. Okay. Those are the official, okay. <laughs> official acronym of today's moral panic. Um, the thing, I don't know if you or your audience have watched Squid Game on Netflix. Okay. It's a, it's a show where they pit people against each other and if they don't win the game, they get shot to death. Um and the thing about Squid Game is you never know what, you don't know what the game is going to be before it starts. And that's the way it is with Republican moral panics. Okay, there's a different one every year. Okay, uh, it's it's caravans, it's uh, radical left socialism. Um, now it's critical race theory. Uh, last year it was defund the police, right? And we don't actually know what's going to be coming at us because um, we're not like uh, the, the aliens in the Matrix, like just controlling uh, all of our activists, <laughs> what comes out of their mouths. Um, but in, in this case, um, Republicans, at least in Virginia, seem to have, you know, accidentally landed on an issue that has some salience with the electorate because they're filling in the blanks on this issue without a lot of organized pushback from Democrats. Um, the person who was most responsible for starting this moral panic is a guy named Christopher Rufo. Um, and my, my wife went to college with him, actually, um, said he was a a complete waste of space. Um, anyway, he he tweeted um, about a year ago. He was like, "We're gonna we're gonna call this thing critical race theory. We're gonna load everything that we don't like about the left into critical race theory." Um, so you know, uh, slavery, gender stuff, you know, uh, trans issues, all that stuff is being subsumed under the banner of critical race theory. And what CRT means to uh, conservative parents is the idea that people are teaching their children something that they don't want them to learn, um, and they're t- they're teaching their children something about. Um, the reality of the United States that um, that's going to make their children uh, hate themselves for something, right? Or, or feel ashamed of being who they are, being ashamed of being a, a born a white person in America or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, it's, though I saw a poll yesterday that said uh, the top issue for Virginia voters is education, say 24%. And the salience of, of COVID has gone down a little bit. Um, and that means effectively that, that Glenn Youngkin has been able to define the terms of this race for the Republican Party. And the terms of that race are re-exerting parental control over what your children are learning in public schools. Um, now, I, I happen to think that this does have some connection to COVID in the sense that uh, the COVID crisis has um, interrupted learning for a long time. It has led to ongoing measures in schools that some parents are deeply opposed to. Um, and so it, it's like education is on everyone's brain. Everyone's like extra hyped up about the, about the public schools. And it's dovetailing with this sort of national reckon, you know, reckoning about, about racial issues. Um, I'm surprised, honestly, that it's having as much success in Virginia as it is. Um, but, um, but the data is the data. And um, the Republicans are more motivated on this issue than Democrats are. So I, I don't think that um, you know, critical race theory panic commands a majority even in Virginia. Um, 
But if you have some segment of the Democratic electorate sitting this out because they're demoralized, which I think they are, um, that means that you can win this race um, simply by differential turnout um, and differential motivation and organization. And I think that's what you see here. And um, Republicans happen to have nominated someone that's not obviously crazy, which I think is helpful for them <laughs> in Virginia. Um, I, I think unlike a few years ago when the Republican candidate was um, was super duper Trumpy, uh, this guy, he says the Trump stuff, but you can I just look into his eyes like, you know, he doesn't believe it. Um, there was a, there was a report yesterday that said one of his good friends was like, Glenn Youngkin knows that Biden won the election, right? Like he's just he just didn't think he'd get the nomination if he admitted that. Um, and that, that's a dynamic that's shot through the Republican Party right now. So, um, yeah, you've got the CRT panic. I think you have um, some weariness setting in with some of the mitigation measures for COVID. Now that cases are, are really coming down dramatically in a lot of places. Um, and parents, I think, and a lot of kids are yearning for uh, normalcy in, in school. And I think that just builds um, builds on the resentment that some parents are feeling towards those, those public school educators. Um, you know, hating public school teachers, Ben, has always been just a just a wonderful winning issue for Republicans. Uh, they come at it with so many different angles, so many different ways to hate public school teachers and the idea of public schooling. Um, and uh, it's just like for them, it's just like a gift that gives on keeps on giving. And I don't think that actually Democrats have really found their footing on the CRT issue. It's like we say this doesn't actually happen in schools. <laughs> You're literally making this up. Um, but that's not really fighting on the issue. You know what I mean? Um, you're, you're, you're denying something when the other side is like, this is what's happening in schools. And you're like, actually it's not, um, but nobody's addressing the issue that's being raised. Um, which is, you know, uh, our, our white children being taught to hate themselves, I think is, is really the, if I could summarize it in one sentence and the answer is obviously no. Um, you know, you can talk about racism and the existence of racism without, you know, without the implication being that, um, little like five-year-old white kids should, should loathe themselves, right? Uh, you just need some critical thinking skills, you need critical race theory. So anyway, that's what's going on in Virginia. It's a tight race. It's a toss-up. Um, Glenn Youngkin and the Republicans have successfully made critical race theory um, in public education into a top-tier issue in that race. I think largely because there's not that much else going on, um, because uh, all Democratic voters have seen for 10 months is um, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin um, throwing obstacles in the way of getting anything done in Washington. And so that's really depriving Democrats of, uh, of a way to tie McAuliffe to a successful national agenda. And that just leaves McAuliffe out there twisting in the wind as himself. And he's not that inspirational. Wow. Uh, everything is breaking for the bad guys. I, uh, I'm going to tie a couple issues together here before I get to uh, COVID fatigue. Uh, when I was listening to you talk about critical race theory and this just general notion uh, that it's teaching uh, children something uh, that their parents don't want them to be taught. Uh, it, we spent a lot of time uh, on the show talking about the concept of cancel culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that cancel culture is tied to this critical race theory. Uh, in that it's just sort of this general notion that has been widely accepted, even by liberals, that the left is punishing the right. And so, so now we have this fight with Davis Chappelle. I, we talk about that a lot in the show. I don't, we don't have to go into that one. Um, 
again, we don't have to relitigate that. I haven't talked about it with you, but I've talked about it many times with other guests. But David Chappelle is sort of leading a charge against cancel culture, and he's being embraced by the right for leading a charge against cancel culture. In basketball, Kyrie Irving is like leading a charge against a form of cancel culture, which is forcing you to be uh, have the vaccine or you don't get to play, all right? And I believe that they the, the Republicans have successfully put into the minds of voters that Democrats are unfairly canceling people who don't agree with them. And somehow or other critical race theory plays into that because it's this notion that this is ideology that is being imposed on children as opposed to just the history of race relations yeah. in this country. What's your thought about my theory? Uh, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I think when you, when you think about who the parents of today's, you know, teenagers and pre-adolescents are, it's, it's generation, it's generation X people. Okay. Um, it's, it's people my age. I mean, I happen to have a, a much younger child cause I got into the parenting game pretty late. Um, but you take your average 12 year old, 13 year old, and their parents are going to be some, some generation Xer, right? Um, and Generation X, I think, was the last generation that, that kind of came through their formative schooling years um, with the idea that, like, talking about race is, is bad. You know, like, we don't see race, colorblindness. Um, you know, you can talk about the existence of slavery, um, but, the, but the narrative is an arc of, you know, the United States sort of redeeming itself over time. Um, that is not how the younger generations see things, right? Um, they have a, a different way of looking at America's racial predicaments. Um, they have a different way of looking at our history and yeah, sure. Some of that is informed by, um, academic analyses of our history. Um, some of which is surely taught in, in high school classrooms, not under the guise of you know, no one's like today's lesson on critical race theory is, is X, Y, and Z. Um, it's just that, um, people are exerting their right, which I think every generation does exert its right to set the parameters of uh, of discourse within an organization or within society uh, in terms of in not making things legal or illegal, right? But just saying like, if you say this or you believe this, it makes you sort of outside of the bubble of acceptability. Okay? And what the younger generations have done is they have defined certain things that the older generation believes are, are perfectly acceptable things to debate. And they've said, you know, we're not going to debate um, you know, whether black people have low IQs anymore. Okay. We're not going to do that anymore. Okay. And if you, you want to come to my university and give a talk about, you know, um, um, what's the guy's name? Charles Murray's, uh, you know, bell curve theory or whatever, we're going to protest you. Okay. No one's trying to put you in jail. Right. I just don't want you to give that talk on my campus because I think it's racist. Um, and I don't want, I don't want my black students to have to debate whether they're smart or not. Right. Um, and older generations have felt that cultural pushback as a form of silencing, um, which it's not. I don't think it's any different than, than any other sort of creation of a set of cultural norms and expectations about how you should behave. Um, and it's worth noting that all these people that are claiming that they've been canceled are making like millions of dollars on their, on their podcasts and their shows. Yeah. Uh, you know, Barry Weiss from the New York Times who like resigned in a huff because she didn't like what happened in like one meeting or something, um, you know, just making like gigantic stacks of money at Substack to write the same article over and over uh, about cancel culture. And it's like, I'm, I'm sorry, but if you're, if you're making $500,000 a year bitching about cancel culture, you actually haven't been canceled, right? 
um, you've just been told that you're not welcome within one of these organizations because of your beliefs. Um, and I'm sorry to say, but that's not illegal in the United States. It's not part of the First Amendment. You don't have a First Amendment right to work for the New York Times. You don't have a First Amendment right to come on my campus and spew nonsense and make my students uncomfortable, right? Um, but <clears throat> not everybody not everybody sees it, I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I've been pushing back on this idea that anybody gets to come to any campus in America, like it's like some free speech zone and say what they want, <laughs> right? Um, or that like First Amendment rights like live and die with like whatever the student union at Ober like Oberlin College says. Um, it's just it's just zaniness, but yeah, these issues are all tied together, and um, and the right has seized uh, on on vaccine mandates as another form of of like left wing technocratic political politically correct uh, cancellation of people's beliefs, um, instead of uh, as a perfectly sensible um, health measure to use in an in an emergency, um, and the right is very motivated by these things, and the left I think not as much. And, and, the, the thing about the school boards and all this stuff in the schools uh, reminds me of how the Muslim Brotherhood like took over um, university student councils in, in the 70s and 80s in, in Egypt, where you, you, have a, you have an organization that feels like it's been excluded from most of the powerful institutions in society, um, which in the, in the context of the American right is just preposterous, right? But let's leave that aside for a second. Okay. They're like, what can we take over? Like, where, where have our adversaries gone to sleep? Um, and one of those places is, is local school boards. Um, and the right has turned local school board meetings into these like culture war zones um, that no sane person would want to go and, and be part of. Um, no liberal is going to want to be taking a job as a school administrator when they're going to get death threats and stuff by people who are like hopped up on Tucker Carlson propaganda. Um, and so they identified like kind of a soft target and they're attacking it relentlessly. Um, Democrats are kind of sitting back on their heels you know, being like, well, we don't teach critical race theory, which is true, right? But like, um, it's not really a good enough answer to the to the question. And the way this is manifesting itself in Virginia is Terry McAuliffe went out in a debate and said, like, you know, parents are not the ones that get to make the decisions about what gets taught in school. It's like school boards and elected officials, yeah, which is true, right? But Glenn, yeah. Glenn, Young, Glenn Youngkin is like, well, Terry McAuliffe doesn't want parents to have input into what their children learn at school. Um, just... Uh, you know, I just don't think the Democrats have a strategy about this. Um, they're in denial uh, in the same way that they've been denial about sort of every every moral panic that has overtaken the right over the last decade. Um, and, you know, we could be wielding the opposite argument, right? Which is like that it's the right that's doing most of the canceling. It's the right that wants to ban like Toni Morrison books in high school, right? That's the right that's defining CRT as anything that teaches you about black history or black issues. Um, and the, the end goal here is to remove discussion and thought about racial politics and racial history in America from our public school curriculum so we can go back to the 60s and 70s, 80s, when you have generations of adults who think that we figured it all out in 1965, you know? That was a great riff, and uh, it brought back nightmares. Uh, and I don't know if you were old enough to be following this, but in 1988 at the presidential debate, uh, Michael Dukakis, or George Bush, Daddy Bush, not Baby Bush, who sent us to war, Daddy Bush, uh, accused Michael Dukakis of being a card-carrying member of the ACLU. And Michael Dukakis, instead of defending, just think about this. Right, right now, just the irony is so profound, I can't even get, I'm just having like a spasm right now. Right now, the Republican Party is championing the notion that they stand for liberty. 
and the right to say whatever you want. And they were victorious, these same Republicans in 1988, by accusing Michael Dukakis of being a member of the ACLU. And instead of like vigorously defending himself, he got defensive. And David, when I listen to you just now, I'm like, it's the same old story with Democrats. They half believe the stuff Republicans say about them. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm, and so yes, they don't vigorously defend themselves because they're like ashamed of what they believe in. You know what I mean? So it's, I see it in almost any issue across the board. And Clinton contributed to this and Obama contributed to this. Obama would always say, well, the left says this, the right says that, and I'm in the middle. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, what the hell do you believe in? Right. And so, <laughs> I'm like, so you're right. So if you ask Democrats, Dems, do they believe that you had a, like a private conversation with them and they weren't trying to figure out what the politically correct thing to say was? If they believe in cancel culture, they would say, yes, they believe in cancel culture. They actually believe the garbage that the Republicans are spewing. So then they kind of like brainwash themselves and they won't, you're right. They won't. I I do not know of a democratic politician in the country. Maybe you can correct me here who counterattacks Republicans on the issue of cancel culture. Am I, am I missing a democratic politician who does that, who says what you just said, which is more cancellation is being incurred as a result of Republicans than Democrats. I mean, you think of any, I think AOC has done a little of this. Um, I think she's been the most vocal person pushing back against the cancel culture narrative. Um, but you know, for the most part, Democrats are running scared from, from this issue. Um, and it's sad to see, I'm glad you brought up 1988 because it, it, (laughs) I, I do remember this. Uh, it was the first thing I remember about politics, actually. Um, and at the, I, but I, I remember another moment from one of those debates, and it was when um, uh, the the moderator, um, I think it was Bernard, was it, what was his name? Bernard Shaw. Shaw. Yeah, I know where you're going. Bernard and Shaw. He yeah. Asked, uh, he asked Michael Dukat. He was like, uh, "And you're against the death penalty, you snowflake. Um, what what would happen if uh, you know if, if Kitty Dukak, Kitty Dukakis, your wife was was raped and murdered?" I think it was the first question of the debate to like Dukakis just like got up on stage and was like, Hey everybody, I'm running for president. Bernard Shaw was like, what would happen if somebody raped and murdered your wife? Um, and, oh, Lord. and Dukakis, yeah. you know, he took so much flack for this because he just kind of stood there and was like, oh, you know, I mean, no, I still, I still, still don't believe. <laughs> and it's like, you know, what people wanted to see, like, I think first of all, the question is outrageous, right? Like just, just the most outrageous thing you can imagine asking a presidential candidate, right? Um, but he should have gotten—he should have gotten indignant. Like, how dare you, Bernard, bring up you know, like my wife's in the audience, man. What's wrong with you? Um, she has like an alcohol yeah. problem, dude. Like, get get a grip. Right? <laughs> um, and of course, like I'd want to kill the guy with my bare hands, right? But that's not what justice yeah. is, right? Like, um, yeah. and uh, you know, the the problem is the possible execution. Like, give some rationale for why you're opposed to it, and he wouldn't even do that. Um, and it, it is indicative of the way that I think Democrats too often allow Republicans to define issues for them. Um, and the way that re- the Democrats in particular in the last decade, in my mind, have allowed Republicans to attach a series of, uh, of like frames and tags on the Democratic Party as being you know, radical and socialist and uh, cancel culture and all this stuff. And Democrats just like steadfastly refuse to talk about Republicans in any any kind of negative terms. Like, 
They will talk about candidates in negative terms, but they will not talk about the Republican agenda. Like, they will not tell a systematic story about what the Republican Party wants to do to you. Um, you know, if it, if it were up to me, you know, you wouldn't say that like the word Republican would not come out of a Democrat's mouth without the word reactionary attached to it. Um, yeah. uh, I just like you just wouldn't say the word you say reactionary Republicans want to do this reactionary Republicans want to do that. Find another word focus tested. I don't care. Come up with something clever. Right. But like the national leadership is still talking about Republicans like, oh, boy, I tell you, we really need a nice Republican Party out there. I remember back the days of, you know, whatever. <laughs> Dan Quayle and I used to get breakfast. Every, you know, they're all attached <laughs> to this idea that they're that their adversaries are these like nice genteel people who just want to cut your taxes um but are but are otherwise happy to play ball and, and be nice which was a never true b especially not true anymore um and it's just like you really want to see some fighting spirit and um you know i don't live in virginia i'm not like uh waking up every day and reading ten thousand words about this race but i don't know like what is terry mcauliffe's rationale like what what, what is he saying glenn glenn youngkin will do to the state of virginia um, and, and how is that resonating with voters? I think there was a strategy hatched in, in August, September that I think worked for Gavin Newsom in California that was like, yeah, you know, they want to repeal the masks and they want to repeal the vaccine mandates. And um, I don't think that that's as good of an issue anymore, honestly, <laughs> just because cases are down. Well, and the political salience of COVID just rises and falls in terms of how bad the outbreak is. And the reality is not that bad right now. So that's where we are. Well, uh I mean, if the, the obvious comparison is uh, California, the recall election, and you and I talked about that a lot. There was a, a pivotal moment. There was a, a moment of anxiety, I should say, where you and I were contemplating the f possibility uh, that Newsom would lose. Uh, the polls were neck and neck on the matter of would he be recalled. And uh, that prospect alone put a, a spotlight on the leading Republican, who was Larry Elder. And I that did a lot to scare Democrats into showing up to vote uh, for Newsom. And it seems as though, uh, David, one of the themes of what you're saying is that Democrats are motivated by an abhorrent candidate that they're running against. Uh, and one of the first things you said about um, Youngkin in Virginia is that he's mild enough to sort of just reassure voters uh, that he's not Donald Trump. And, and this is where I think the Dems have failed. Get your response to this, because I think you're absolutely correct. It is permissible, apparently, in the state of Virginia for the Republican candidate uh, for governor to say that uh, he feels as though there's a possibility that the election was stolen. And yet, so that he is appealing to his base, so they're fired up, uh, but somehow or other, he says it in such a way that it doesn't scare Republican voters or independent voters who witnessed the insurrection at the Capitol. And I just feel as though that the Democrats, it's like that's an indication of how further to the right the center keeps going. You get, do you follow what I'm saying here? Like, yeah, that somehow or other, it's more destructive for a Democratic candidate to be aligned with allowing schools to teach history of slavery than it is for a Republican candidate not to be critical of the insurrection on January 6th. And I think that's a product of what you just said, that Democrats pull back on 
a counterpunch against the entire Republican Party. Your thoughts? No, I, I 100% agree. Um, and the way that if you were going for the jugular, politically, of course, <laughs> the way that you would talk about Glenn Youngkin is you would call him a, a reactionary insurrectionist, right? Um, a, ra a reactionary insurrectionist who wants to take um, the express will of the Virginia electorate and give it to Donald Trump no matter what happens, right? Because that's what he's saying. Um, reactionary insurrectionist Glenn Youngkin doesn't believe in democracy. Reactionary insurrection, uh, insurrectionist Glenn Youngkin um, wants to stage an authoritarian takeover of Virginia's public schools. Um, you know, figure out um, a, a framing of the CRT stuff as, as a way of turning it against them. What do they want to do to the schools, right? Um, Republicans are, are framing it as parental control, right? What we should be talking about um, is reactionary white right wing censorship, right? We should be we should be talking about it in terms of educational McCarthyism, because that's what it is, right? Um, it's it's one thing for everybody to show up at a school board meeting and be like, what's the limitations of what we want to teach five year olds about slavery? Um, what what are the limitations of what we want to teach a six year old about uh, about race relations in America? Um, and uh, and maybe there's room maybe there's room to give here, right? But um, but that's not that's not what this is about, right? Like they don't care about that. Um, they're banning books. They're banning words. Uh, if you see what's happening in the Wisconsin legislature, um, the, the, the GOP uh, majority in Wisconsin has, has put out a bill that would ban 89 words and phrases from being spoken yeah. in public schools in Wisconsin. Okay, um, We need to use this language, right? This is thought police. Um, this is censorship. This is depriving young people of the opportunity to uh, use one of their terms for it. You know, um, you're, uh, you're closing down the marketplace of ideas in, in high school. Um, whatever, you know what I mean? Um, instead of denying that it's happening uh, or denying the, 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 the opposition's narrative of what's happening, reframe it in a way that would appeal to parents who don't know anything about anything, are too busy to care, and all they're hearing is you're teaching my white kid to hate himself. Um, what do we have to say about that parent? And it has to be more than, oh, this is being made up by Tucker Carlson. It doesn't matter whether it's true. <laughs> of course it's true. Um, but what, you know, what do Republicans want to do to public schools, right? And Republicans want to shut down debate, um, about a, a host of important issues in American society. Um, they want to deprive teachers of their right to free speech. Um, they want to deprive school administrators of their right to free speech. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a dem democratic consultant, Ben, but sometimes I think like someone listen to this show and just hire me because it, it just... <laughs> it's so easy yeah. to, to flip the script on these guys and we just yeah. do it uh, we just we just feel like we're we're back on our heels and i'll tell you what's really not helping anything um is the fact that terry mcauliffe has nothing to run on the reason that we're that crt is able to be the top tier issue in the virginia gubernatorial race is because democrats have absolutely nothing to show for 10 months of their unified government yeah. in dc um other than like squabbling and, and a resurgence of covid uh, after Joe Biden declared our independence from it on July 4th. And um, the, the reality is like all, all of uh, state politics are increasingly nationalized. Um, people are still more willing to vote for an opposite party governor when they're dissatisfied with things than they are for, for a presidential candidate or a senator. But nevertheless, the most important things happening in Virginia are national um, because CRT is a national moral panic and is being applied very, very capably and skillfully by Republicans in Virginia. Um, Democrats are just like, that's not real. Um, they want to take away your 
I don't even know what like what would they run on right now. Um, have you enjoyed watching Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, <laughs> co-presidents? Uh, elect me, and you can hear more from them. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I uh, something else. They really need something else. Yeah. I uh, I hear you, and uh, we'll refrain from uh, going down that path, uh, Dave, David and I. I urge everybody, if you're listening to this for the first time, we've spent uh, many a show talking about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and that nightmare continues. Uh, I'll just tell you the latest headline I saw, Joe Biden flying off to Europe to meet with the Pope. Uh, he's <laughs> He can't get Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin uh, to agree to this just like a, a pare down version of what Democrats want. It's a really dysfunctional situation. And I think the obvious point that we keep making is that they don't really, Democrats don't really control the Senate. Let's be honest, folks. There's two Democrats who are really Republicans. And um, so it's essentially a Republican controlled Senate. All right. Now let's close with the discussion of what I'm calling uh, COVID fatigue. And uh, David wrote a really good uh, column for the week. Uh, he talked about uh, how he himself has COVID fatigue. And he, uh, even though you've been a very dutiful citizen, as you pointed out uh, in, in your essay, uh, David, you got the vaccine, you wear, you wear a mask, you socially distance, uh, you, do, you, you, do, you follow all the correct protocol as the doctors established. You're getting sick and tired of it too. Uh, and my sense, having read your uh, column, is that this is a contributing factor uh, for on behalf, believe it or not, it's just, just astounding how politics works in America on behalf of Republicans. And that is the f- fatigue that people have with um, COVID and with following the mandates and wearing the mask and getting a shot. It's just c- catching up to them and they just want it to be over. And so they're more susceptible, I guess is the word, or more open about a Republican says we don't have to do anything. You get what I'm saying? You know what I mean? They're like, they're just like, yeah, I'm sick of this. You go on too far. Let's not do anything. And uh, so suddenly like a, a DeSantis view is perhaps more appealing to uh, swing voters than a, a J.B. Pritzker view, the governor of Illinois. Uh, that was uh, something I got out of reading your essay. Was I reading something into it that didn't exist? Uh or uh, am I on to something? No, I think you're on to something. I mean, um, it's important to note before we before I jumped on a call today, because um, I knew we were going to be talking about. I, I I tried to do some some research about polling, uh, about about mask mandates in particular, because the, the the there is no recent polling about it. Right, the polling is all from late August and early September at the height of the Delta wave, um, and th- those polls showed you know overwhelming majorities of parents favoring masks in public schools and. Um, indoor mask mandates and in, in the states that are doing that kind of thing. Um, and we just, don't, we actually don't really know how people feel about this right now. Um, but I, t- I do spend uh, probably too much time on like right-wing Twitter um, reading what people are saying. And the narrative there is like, look, you know, they told, they said when we got the vaccine, this would be over. And now they're saying it's got to be the boosters. They can make our kids wear masks forever. What are the off-ramps? Like when, when are, you know, full 2019 normal or bust? That's the rallying cry on the right right now. Um, and um, I, I, you know, I obviously don't share that sentiment, um, but I do think that there's a certain amount of um, fatigue with the uncertainty itself. Um, there was a, a story today in the, it was, I think it was the Sun-Times, 
and they asked, um, you know, they asked Pritzker and uh, Alison Arwadi, who's the public health commissioner in Chicago, they were like, when, when would we lift the mask mandate, right? Um, and Arwadi was like, well, when the daily, you know, when the daily case rate in Chicago falls below 200 <clears throat> to like 294 or something right now, when it falls below 200, maybe. <laughs> it's like, we got to get below 200, then we got to stay there for a while, and then we'll see, maybe, right? Um, and I think that sort of lack of, of knowing when I might be able to like take my kid to the aquarium without um, sweating through a mask for two hours, um, when I might be able to go teach without a mask. Now, most people are not college professors then, and most people are not college students. But anyway, in Illinois, we've got a statewide mandate here. We're one of, uh, one of only nine states that's doing that right now. And I, I do think that people are starting to ask, like, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to keep doing this for, I wouldn't say I'm happy to, I will, I will do this because it's the right thing to do. And if the public health people tell me that this is the right thing to do and it's working here, I'll do it. But I need to know what, under what circumstances I will not have to do it anymore. You know? Um, and we just have not really been told that. Um, I think there's a sense that people have been waiting for the kids vaccine to be approved. And then once parents, I don't think, I don't know that most parents are even going to do it, but I think the parents that want to vaccinate their kids, they're able to do that. At that point, you're able to say, look, everybody that wants a life-saving vaccine, the free miracle vaccine can have it. Um, everyone that wants to die can die. Good luck. Godspeed. Um, and, uh, you know, that does leave a small sliver of people who are immunocompromised, um, who are, you know, in some ways never going to be free of the threat of this thing. Um, but I, I don't think that you can... I don't think you're going to be able to politically keep some of these measures in place to, to protect like the 1% of the population that, that uh, is going to be permanently vulnerable to COVID. So anyway, I think the combination of all that stuff, right? People are just, you know, people just like want to go into a restaurant and have it be like before. You know, um, it's been something that we've been waiting for for a long time. You know, personally, uh, psychologically, I made it through last winter and the promise that when I was vaccinated, that things would be, you know, the things would get back to normal fairly quickly. And um, it's not Joe Biden's fault or J.B. Pritzker's fault that, that the virus mutated into Delta, which is really a much worse version of, of COVID than the original. Um, I've, I've said to people, uh, if, if we had been hit by the Delta variant in March 2020, um, that, that would have been just orders of magnitude worse than, than what actually happened. You know, I think that the, the I, I think several million people would have died of COVID if the, if the Delta variant hit initially. So it's, um, that's nobody's fault, right? But in politics, um, I, I hate to tell you, it often doesn't matter whose fault it is. Um, it gets yeah. blamed on the party in power and we are the party in power. Yeah. Democrats are the party in power. Yeah. And I think, um, it, it may make sense to keep some of these restrictions in place for another couple of months. Um, but I think that the public health authorities and I think that the politicians need to get up and say like, look, when, when these metrics fall to these levels, we're, we're taking off the masks unless there's, unless there's another variant, we're not going to go back to them. Um, we're not going to move the, we're not going to move the goalposts. You know, people on the far right are like, they're going to make us mask for the flu now. And, uh, you know, everybody's going to mask all winter and they want to control us and microchip us. And you know, I know you can't combat that kind of paranoia. Right. Um, I don't think anybody like, why would ever, why would the government want us to wear masks all the time? Right. Like it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, but you have state governments that are more or less cautious and the Biden administration is just sort of like, I don't know what they're doing right now. Um, they think like rolling out the boosters and the kids vaccines is going to fix this. 
when the reality is if you have 30% of the population that's never going to get vaccinated, there's going to be a rolling epidemic, like more or less forever. Um, and the people yeah. that are doing the right thing are just not going to tolerate. Uh, like I'm not, I, you know, I, I don't want to wear a mask in, in Mariano's for the rest of my life to protect the the 20% the of the population that's just like too coked out on Tucker Carlson to, to save their own lives. You know, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've enjoyed not getting many seasonal colds too, but the, but the, but the benefit here is not worth the cost of a, a sort of ongoing disruption to society. And, and you see some things that I do think are a little bit nuts. Like, I mean, I walk by my neighborhood um, public school here. I live right next to and, uh, and kids are being masked outside, um, which is there's, there's just there's yeah. no public health guidance on the face of the earth that says that you should be masking little kids in the outdoors right now. So, um, I, and I, you know, you're not going to find somebody that's more supportive of, <laughs> of the general arc of COVID, um, policy than me. And even I'm starting to look around and be like, what, you know, just tell me when it ends. I just need to know when it ends. Yeah. You know, that, 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 that is so true about little kids. I just, uh, I thought about that the other day. I was walking past, it was a private school and there was recess by chance. Uh, I was walking by, so I'm not blaming this on the public schools, but the kids were frolicking at recess, playing soccer, some were playing basketball, some were just playing tag, and they were wearing masks. And I had the same thought. I'm like, why are you guys wearing masks? You're outdoors. I thought we dealt with this already. But I, I have a, a conf confession to make, uh, David which is going to put me even more of an outsider than I already am. Uh, it's not that I enjoy wearing masks. It's just like, I don't think I will ever go back to a moment where I go into, well, I never go into Mariano's anyway, but uh, a Jewel or a Trader Joe's, there's no Mariano's near where I live, uh, without wearing a mask. I have like, so, oh, this mask. I like this mask. I don't want to get a cold. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of weird. I, uh, now, last night I went to the Bulls game. Great game, by the way. Uh, and um, I wore the mask. You have to wear a mask indoors. Uh, that's the current the rule in Chicago, unless you're eating a hot dog or drinking something. Uh, so, you know, it was kind of a pain in the neck to um, watch the whole game with the mask on. But it wasn't that bad. But that's just me. And by the way, I'll just close with this. Part of the problem, you got me going here. Just the... Oh my goodness. Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, while we still have this mask mandate in arenas, went to the Chicago Sky game. I don't know if you know this, Chicago Sky, the women's uh, NBA team here in Chicago, I know you're a baseball fan, but they were victorious. They were the champs. And it was a great thing for women's basketball. And she was there. Give her credit for being an early supporter of uh, women's basketball. She wasn't wearing a mask. She put it out on her Twitter feed. It's exact violation of a freaking health code in the city that she is enforcing, David, and she's not wearing a mask. And this will, the endless arrogance of Democratic politicians. We talked about this with Gavin Newsom. Yeah. You talk about giving a campaign issue to the Republicans. I mean, just not wearing a mask. I'll send you the picture if you don't believe me. She's uh, she put it on her Twitter feed. <laughs> hey, the, tw the sky won. Everybody's wearing a mask except for Lori Lightfoot. Uh, I mean, and meanwhile, Al Sarwadi is as bad as uh, hypocrisy is just as bad as the underlying issue. Sometimes, you know, no matter where, you, yes. even if you're like an ardent anti-masker, um, you're going to get mad at Lightfoot for doing this, right? Um, or even if you are fully supportive of the policy, it offends everyone equally. Right. Um, if you show yeah. up and you're not, you're not adhering to your own guidance. Um, 
And I, yeah, I agree with you. I think that there may be some months in the winter when uh, I'm starting to look at flu maps for the first time in my life, right? Like there's, I think there's a heightened awareness of some of the other things that we have just decided it's okay if 30,000 people die or the flu. Um, and yeah, maybe in the, maybe in December, January, February, maybe I will wear a mask in Mariano's, right? But I, but I want to be able to go to the movies and, um, you know, take, take my child to the museum and, um, and not have to not have to do this stuff and and people are welcome to keep doing it right i think that's like what's not broadly understood here if you feel vulnerable keep you know keep at it right um i think that we're headed to a world where we're gonna have a real bifurcation of the american population i i got my booster shot on on tuesday i don't know how many people are actually going to do it um I, I think that we're headed to a world where some some substantial plurality of the country is going to be much more protected against an endemic virus than others. It's the same deal with flu. Um, the people that get the flu shot um, still get the flu sometimes, right? But they don't end up in the hospital. Um, and I don't know what to say about that. It's um, it's it's really unfortunate. It's unfortunate the Republican Party has been, I think, turned against all vaccinations now, which is uh, which is really going to create a lot of public health uh, headaches moving forward. Um, but I do think, um, I do think that Democrats who are in charge right now would be wise to communicate more clearly what they see as the, as the end game to some of these mitigation measures. Um, yeah. and say so like when, you know, when case one metrics fall to these levels, I mean, the, the positivity rate in Chicago is 1.6%, 1.9% right now, which is, you know, which is below what they used to say the threshold was for some of these mitigation measures. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm probably going to wear a mask to teach until my son is vaccinated, right? Um, but that's an endpoint, right? That's mm -hmm. like, okay, that'll he's three. That'll probably happen in January, February. Um, and then I would like to stop doing this. Now, that maybe that's selfish. And just like, whenever I feel most protected is when I can stop doing this, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm aware of that, right? Like, I have been a little bit out of the place on some of this COVID stuff. Um, I mean, I've always done what, I, what was asked of me, but my, you know, it's just people have... People have just gone a little bit. And this has been hard, right? Um, it's been hard to negotiate these daily risk calculations. And should I see my parents? Should I do this? Should I do that? Is it okay to go to the museum? Is it okay to go to the aquarium? Should we have a party? How many people at the party? Just all this stuff is very exhausting, you know, and I'd really love to put it in the rear view. Um, and I think it's to the Democrats' detriment if they don't show the public what normalcy looks like post-COVID. Um, what, if any, mitigation measures we expect to be more or less permanent? Um, what will go away um, when things get better? Um, please tell parents that their kids are not going to be masked in school in the fall of 2022, unless something horrendous happens. Um, I, I think uh, I think people do like people want to protect their kids, right? But like they also don't want their kids in school in a mask, right? Like um, it's it's a compromise that's being made in the interest of public safety and their and the safety of their kids. And I think once that children's vaccine rolls out, and that this is going to happen sooner rather than later, if it's March, April, twenty twenty two, and CPS is still mandating masks for for students, you know, universally, um, and that vaccine has been available to every literally every person that wants it, we're, we're really going to have a. It's like that's a problem. That's going to be a big problem that we need to start thinking about how yeah. to address that. So. Um, and I'm not blaming the I'm not blaming CPS or the union. I mean, everyone's doing the best they can right now. I I just think um, I just think we need a um, that book a few years ago. We need a sense of an ending here. You know what what is the ending? Yeah. Be? So 
All right. Well, that's a good a spot as ever as any to end this particular conversation. David Ferris, thank you very much as always. Uh, fascinating stuff. And uh, I will continue wearing my mask. Uh, probably I'll be wearing a mask at, at, uh, and on an airplane for the rest of my life. I, there's no doubt in my mind I'll be doing that. I got a feeling you'll be doing that as well. Yeah. Uh, David, thank you very much. And I urge everybody to check out his columns in the week. Uh, good stuff. The last one is really good. I urge everybody to check it out. Uh, it talks about his go, taking his child uh, to the aquarium and how insane the, the times look. Uh, David, you take care. I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks, all right? All right. Thanks, Ben. Great to be back and uh, look forward to chatting again soon. Thanks a lot. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.